My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I personally have never yet fished from Littlehampton in Sussex, but having just spent the past 40 minutes listening to a podcast interview done for the site by Graham Pullen, I have to say that I've been missing out on some truly amazing potential. Here, charter skipper Neil French gives a very frank and detailed insight into what the visiting angler to the port can expect. Not only that, he also provides a wealth of general information that could be taken and used anywhere around the country, which could be a benefit to all of us, regardless of where we choose to go afloat. So Neil, what is your background history of actual sea fishing? You know, when did you get into it? I started probably when I was 10 years old uh, as a small boy fishing on Muddyford uh, Pier with a hand line where I caught my first fish which was a flounder of a pound and went on from there to my own private boats eventually having a lock-in 33 which was based at Littlehampton Harbour. At that time I spent uh, some 20 years in the electronics industry as a sales rep and decided that uh, I was absolutely fed up with sitting on the motorway for most of my life. Many people suggested to me that I might like to think about taking them out on a charter basis, and with that in mind I um, went out and actively pursued the purchase of Spirit of Aaron, um, a 40-foot lock-in, and then proceeded over the following three years to get my ticket and all of the various certificates that were required to actually go chartering. Okay, now you run this uh, the Spirit of Aaron, that's uh, a 40-foot locking cruiser. Uh, give us a bit of a breakdown, a bit of a rundown on the uh, you know the engine, uh, electrics and that sort of thing, and what fish finder equipment you have. Yeah, well, she's a 40-foot uh, lock-in with a flybridge, which is interesting, makes it slightly different from the point of view that we can actually um, sit on uh, up there as well and, and back down on fish, which gives it an ideal opportunity for us to do not only static fishing but also drifting and um, and also potentially trolling should I take the boat offshore to other parts of the world in the future. She's powered by two 350 horsepower Sabre engines, both of which are turbocharged. That gives us a, a um, top speed of about 25 knots, cruising speed of about 16 or 17 knots, which is ideal for the opportunity if we're having a bad day to be able to change tactics completely and move elsewhere fairly quickly. She's full of electronics, she's been bristling uh, both on the flybridge and down below where I can drive her from either position. We use um, a Garmin plotter and fish finder. We also have that uh, connected to another Garmin plotter and fish finder on the flybridge. We use, uh, we've obviously got a 48 mile radar uh, there are three fish finders on board, including side scan and forward looking sonars, and obviously all of the relevant safety equipment that you would expect DSC radios, as well as um, some of the more uh, modern technology now, AIS radar, etc. etc. Pretty explicit boat there, sounds like you've got uh, all singing, all dancing there. How many anglers do you take on that? Well, the boat's actually licensed for eight. Um, There are other 40-foot lock-ins operating around the country with um, licenses up to 12 or 14. But I actually went for eight because I like to give uh, more of a personal service. I think it's better for the anglers if they've got more room to move on the boat. And um, we do a lot of corporate business on the boat, so the the boat's got quite a large cabin, which means that uh, with our inclement weather throughout the year, it also gives us the opportunity to get out of the elements from time to time if we need to, 
and enjoy a lunch or coffees around a dining table, as well as enjoying the sport out on the deck. Do you uh, actually do any, you know, you provide the proverbial tea and cakes for these anglers or what? I mean, what's your full service for the day? Do they bait and stuff like that? What do you supply? What comes in with a, with a full day package fishing with you? It all depends on what the client actually requires. I mean, obviously I do individual and normal charter days typically for local angling clubs or indeed individuals that might want to get into the start of sport fishing. Um, equally I do a lot of corporate days um, I'm fairly close to the city which means we've got customer bases with the various bankers in the city they come down maybe only two or three people um, they often require lunch as being part of the day and they've found that the boat actually is a very economical way of doing a corporate day as opposed to for example a day at the races or a day at the golf club it's a great day for binding people together as well especially if the elements aren't particularly good on that day but um, I offer a full service um, depending on, on what's required always supplying coffee and tea like most charter skippers throughout the day although sometimes that can be hard especially when we're wreck fishing and drifting on the day but yeah we try and cater for everybody's needs depending on what they want I also cater for young children uh, we do young father and son days especially in the evenings when there's a few mackerel around during the summer I've got a full set of good quality tackle on board we tend to use um, Abu rods and reels as well as pen internationals and they come as part of the package if people require it for rod iron on the day what sort of uh, line do you use i mean when you say you, you're taking people out obviously specialist anglers they've probably got their own gear anyway corporate people perhaps wouldn't have their own gear individuals may or may not have it beginners obviously haven't got anything at all so you supply tackle but what about the line do you actually let them fish with braid or, or do you tend to have higher outfits with mono on them how does that work yeah it's a good question i mean we've got a very very diverse type of fishing available to us from Littlehampton. If we're fishing in the deep water then obviously I favour braid because it gives me the opportunity to still use light rods and less lead. So I've got reels on the boat which are spooled up with typically 30-40 pound braid. We would use those mainly for the wrecking or as I say in deep water. But equally I favour light tackle inshore fishing for bream and bass and then I would typically use mono. Uh, which I think is a little bit user-friendly, especially for the uh, novice, if you like. And then typically we've got the lines of sort of 15 and 20 pounds class. But once again, it, it very much depends on what the species we're going for on the day. If we're going conger fishing, for example, or tote fishing, which both of those species are readily available to us in the summer months on the wrecks and banks off of Littlehampton, then we would probably up it to sort of 30 pound class rods, uh, with bigger sort of uh, ambassador 7,000 C size reels um, and typically 40, 50 pound line on those reels and then 80 pound uh, nylon for trace line. Now you carry all this on the boat? I mean you've got all this equipment there or you, you tend to take it on as per what the client wants each time? You know, if he wants to go tote fishing you load up with tote gear or so you, do you carry a lot of tackle with you is what I'm trying to say? Yeah we carry a lot of tackle on the boat. We carry the tackle to really cover all aspects including shark fishing on the boat um, and simply because she has got a good return of speed and we do have such a diverse amount of area that we can fish off of Little Hampton. We've muscle beds, we've wrecks, we've got sandbanks and also we've obviously got the reef system which is more widely known. So if we're having a bad day on one particular area I can very very quickly sometimes save the day by upping anchor moving quickly to another area for a totally different style of fishing. 
Now I've noticed a big change, it's been God over 30 years since I've been down to Littlehampton and the Marine River now all seems new to me, it seems it's, uh, it's privately run now and it seems like most of the charter boats like yourself go down from what I would call the Eastern uh, Promenade. Are, are there any other plans for any uh, extensions of marinas here or is Littlehampton, uh, you know, has it gone as far as it can do to the best of your knowledge? Well I think like most areas around the country which have got a sort of nautical background to them, the eastern side of Littlehampton has been very well developed over the last few years. Um, hence the reason a lot of the charter boats have now ended up in Pier Road on the eastern side near the Harbour Master's office. There are a lot of plans to now develop the western side of the river, which at the moment is fairly sparse. Um, the development plans that I've seen include um, the use of a new all-singing, all-dancing marina facility where the golf club is at the moment. But of course you're quite right, the marina now itself is, is privately owned. There's been a lot of development up at the marina and if you go up there you'll see an awful lot of boats both on permanent moorings and or on the hard standing as well as a slipway which is available to um, people coming with their own private boats so we've actually now got a slipway on the east and west side of, of the river so you've got easy access to the harbour entrance uh, no more than five minutes from each slipway now anybody using uh, a small boat, um, I did actually go down and have a look at them, one in the private uh, marine as you say upriver and a really super wide one down in the town on that's Pier Road, that's I, I guess what you call that. Um, anybody bringing a small boat down here, any tips uh, or areas to avoid or just to beware of if you're taking a small boat down there yourself? Well, I mean, absolutely. At the end of the day, it is a tidal river, and so you need to be conscious before you set out that you arrive and launch and, in fact, recover your boat at the right times of the tide. The, the river doesn't completely dry out. There is always water in the river, but you do need to be conscious of the fact of two things. Firstly, it's a very fast-flowing river. On a spring tide, you can get as much as six knots of speed from, that, um, from the harbour entrance itself. And also we have the sandbar across the entrance of the river itself. Um, for safety issues, I would really tend to leave your entrance to the harbour within three and a half to four hours each side of high water. And that um, really depends on both, both neap and spring tides for safety. Um, you need to be conscious as well that you will sometimes see a bit of swell in the river, especially in the harbour entrance when we have a southeasterly wind of over um, force four. On your own boat for chartering, as, oh, it's a bit of a generalisation this really, but are most of your trips mostly wreck fishing or you know, are they split between wreck fishing and inshore like tackle? How do you find, what's, what's, what, what are people wanting now? You know, what's the angle of today uh, really looking forward to this fishing? Um, well with the speed of the boat on, um, and with the, the fact that we've got over 100 wrecks say within 20 or 30 miles of the harbour entrance Wreck fishing is still and does remain very popular. However, um, Littlehampton is very well known for its bream fishing. So it depends very much on the time of year, but I would suggest that between April and June, we tend to specialise mainly in light tackle inshore for the bass and the bream. Uh, moving out to the wrecks after June, we would fish the wrecks, say, between June and September. So we tend to be uh, in deeper water. But we go as far afield as Alderney, for example. I take very Various crews to Alderney for the turbot and the brill. 
But getting closer to Littlehampton, we have sandbanks, uh, mussel beds, all within ready distance. So we really cater for all different aspects of angling. There isn't a single species of fish that I don't think you can't catch from Littlehampton on the various grounds. Now, one of the most famous marks uh, a lot of people will be aware of is those uh, Kingmere rocks. So where are they and how deep and over what area do they cover? You know, And also, uh, while you're on the subject, I mean, I've only ever heard of Kingmere here, but there must be other rocks and reefs. So other than Kingmere, you know, what other marks are there that are rough ground, sort of breamy type marks? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, Littlehampton's been known for years as being uh, one of the best places in the country to come for bream fishing. We um, we get a very, very large run of bream. They come here to spawn on our reef system, and I suppose it's better, better known as Kingmere Rocks. What people don't understand is that the actual reef system itself extends considerably further out than just Kingmere Rocks. It actually starts off of Bognor, um, right adjacent with Butlins. It then moves out across towards Middleton in a southeasterly direction, better known to the locals as West Ditch and East Ditch, disappearing again for maybe a mile and then appearing off of Littlehampton, almost 180 degrees south of Littlehampton, um, and better known as Black Ledge. Then it disappears again for about uh, a mile and then appears as the better known Kingmere Rocks, which is actually some three miles long and will almost run um, as far as Worthing. So the reef system itself is, is considerably larger than most people expect. The people off of Bognor have fished it for years for Celsius crab. There are a lot of lobster there and, and not just bream. We get a lot of bass, we get a lot of pollock. We even see triggerfish on the reef system in, in more recent years. Look at the chart uh, that we, we've got here in front of us. A portion of the Kingmere has a sort of section, a little bit of a notch cut out of it. What, what is that? Is that a good fishing area? Yeah, a very good fishing area. That's the um, far eastern end of Kingmere, and it's better known to the locals as the Spur. Depending on the tide and the size of the tide, you really want to be fishing on the outer edges of the Spur, and these have always been probably the better known marks for the bigger bream in the early part of the year and indeed a good place to start fishing for a second run of bream although smaller that we get around September and October. Now on the subject of bream we know how famous it is just tell us exactly some of the numbers and the incredible size bream you have actually weighed here. Well over the years obviously um, they've unfortunately they've been exploited by the commercial fishermen who tend to come here every year and we see them pair trawling there are talks actually in the future of actually making the Kingmere a potential conservation area because of the fact that the bream do actually come here to spawn it's not unusual for us to see um, fish as large as uh, five and six pounds on the Kingmere especially in the early part of the year around end April um, and May being the peak time if I was to go back into the harbour uh, with 10 bream over three and a half pounds, that wouldn't surprise any other charter skipper in our local area. And, and they're all catching at this time of year. You know, that's just, you know, early summer, I would call it late spring, early summer. That's still the traditional time to come for the bream, is it? It certainly is. But, I mean, the second run of bream that, w that we get in September, October, we actually tend to get just as many in terms of quantity. They're just slightly smaller fish. Um, but they're still a good table-sized fish, two, two-and-a-half pounders. As I say, the fish have been exploited over the years, but they have seemed to make a bit of a comeback over the last three or four years. It's not unusual for an angler to go there at the right time of the year on the right day and catch 40 or 50 bream in a day.
Really? Now, something you just said there surprised me. Is that you mentioned about they commercial fish them trawling, and I never even knew they commercial fish, you know, like that for the bream. So they must have really knocked them into a cocked hat, you know, if they're there for spawning. Is it just one boat, or are there several boats that used to do this years ago? Uh, well, unfortunately, we still have them even today, um, and um, every year without fail we see them. We do also see the fisheries people trying very, very carefully to monitor exactly what and where they're doing. Um, they, they can't actually fish over the rock, so there is a little bit of sanctuary there for the fish, but unfortunately the fish don't actually spawn on the rock. The fish actually make nests just off of the rock, little crater-type nests which they try and guard um, their eggs from, um, from other predators. And unfortunately that's when they're the most vulnerable. So the um, bean trawlers and pear trawlers in particular tend to concentrate on the areas on the edges of the rock and you will see them going up and down throughout the early spring where they do catch extremely large numbers of them. There has recently been uh, a successful court case where uh, the skipper of one of the commercial boats was heavily fined for the amount of fish that he was taking. Really, it's interesting. I was just thinking now because when I came 30 or more years ago, you know, they were just everywhere and we all took too many. It was just the way it was. But I wonder if the, the fact that, looking at the chart here, it's, it's quite a complex uh, set of uh, rocks and ridges and everything. I wonder if modern GPS has something to do with the fact that the, those pair trawlers can now actually get really tight into the rocks. Do you think there's, that, that's a theory or is not necessarily have they always just been good at catching the bream over the nests, if you like? Well, not being a commercial fisherman, I've never really, I don't really understand how they manage to fish for them so successfully, but I think with modern rock hopping gear, they have the ability to be able to get much closer to the rocks. Also, I think they now use nets which are relatively cheap to buy, especially if they end up ripping holes in them when they're going over the rocks. The problem is always the same, and that is they tend to get a good market price at the early part of the season for the bream, but as they catch so many, they very quickly flood the market, and it's such a shame that they get such a poor price for them after they've caught their allocation. With regards to conservation, I have to say anglers have changed their attitudes considerably over the years. Gone are the days when I used to see people returning with sackfuls of bream, some of which unfortunately used to be returned and thrown back to the sea. I'm pleased to say that most anglers that I have on the boat now take one or two fish for the table and the rest are happily returned. Well, it's good as the way it should be. Now, uh, you did mention earlier to me uh, when I was taking some notes anyway that you've got a couple of tips on <clears throat> size of baits and also, you know, not dropping the lead straight down, bouncing it back. Tell us a bit more about your own technique. Yeah, I will absolutely. First thing I would suggest as a good tip, though, would be to the small boat fisherman that intends to come to Littlehampton to fish for the bream. You must remember you're going to be fishing on heavy rock, so um, one of the tips I would suggest is don't use uh, an anchor as such, use a grapnel, small grapnel with a very limited length of chain on it. That way, when the boat's actually turning in the tide, especially as you get to slack water, your chain won't actually wrap around a rock and you've got a much better chance of actually retrieving your gear. With regards to the actual fishing for bream, I would suggest a 1-0 hook, which may, most anglers would, would think was fairly large. We tend to find that the bream have got lots of little small teeth, they're plucky little fish, and they bite very, very quickly in rapid succession. If you can put as much bait as you can on the hook, at least you will be confident that if you've missed a few bites, you've still got bait on the hook, and you'll be surprised. Bream tend to come back to the bait, and you'll very often 
get the opportunity to catch that same fish that was biting on another uh, you'll get another chance at the fish um, one of the things we also do is we tend to fish in shallowish water it's no deeper than 35 feet there so cast a distance uh, away from the boat so that you don't get any noise from the anchor or rope trot the baits back so use a lead that's small enough to just touch bottom um, and another little tip is to put a little floating bead above the hook that just helps to lift the bait especially if it's if it gets masked by weed or rock over the kingna. Uh you've got other fishing here we talked about the bream but do you uh, have any other fishing over say clean banks or mussel beds for species like place brill rays that sort of uh, that sort of species absolutely graham i mean apart from the reef system which we've mentioned which incidentally people just associate with bream we catch a lot of undulate rays there an undulate ray being obviously one of the rays that actually favors rock so we catch a lot of undulate rays whilst we're actually bream fishing and the other thing is that you often get very good quality bass running along the reef systems as well um, i think i mentioned earlier we've recently um, caught uh, triggerfish over the reef and we also get pollock wrasse and the various fish that you would expect to see over rock however apart from that we have good mussel beds where you can expect to catch place we've also got good sand banks especially down towards Bogner where you'll see most of the other types of ray we get good runs of smoothhound and taupe as well as obviously the wreck fishing for conger ling and pollock so as I said earlier you can catch most species that are listed in the uh, in, 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 around the country from Littlehampton. Uh, on that subject of mussel beds, I know uh, <clears throat> a lot of the guys run up uh, from the eastern Solent to, to fish for these big plates. Now, just tell us what sort of size these plates go to, how you fish for them, because they're uh, quite impressive sized fish. Um, well, the area we actually fish for the mussel beds is very, very tidal, so you need to pick small tides where you can actually drift at a relatively good speed to be able to catch these plays. The place that I personally have had one of £6.14 on, on this mark, um, we've had several over £5. It's not as good as it used to be, unfortunately, because it has been dived very, very frequently when the place arrive. And of course, the way the place actually sits on the mussel beds means that he's an easy prey for the sport divers. It is only 35 feet of water and it's quite easy for them to spear them. Um, however, there are still good plays to be had um, and it's not unusual for us to get a bag of 20 or 30 plays on a good day. And what sort of uh, tackling techniques? Any particular baits for those? Well, I prefer using uh, ragworm for the for the place. We do often use a spoon, um, sometimes about six inches above the bait is ideal. Um, a five foot flowing trace, I would suggest, and uh, make sure that you're hopping the bottom as you drift through. So um, there's a lot of tide there. So I have known, you know, eight ounces of lead being the requirement. Uh, you need to be cautious. The mussel bed itself is is quite large. It's about the size of four or five football pitches and it is quite snaggy so you don't want to go too light on the line even as high as 15 to 20 pound trace line is ideal oh that's good yeah i know they do get some good sport there um on the subject of flatfish still i've heard you mention you get some brill and some turbot so uh, what's that all about i never heard of those from littlehampton before well, they're still a rare fish, you know, anywhere in the country other than the places like, such as Alderney and the Channel Islands where they're well known. However, if there are any turbot or brill caught off of Littlehampton, they always come off the same areas, uh, which is our Gascony Bank and Eastborough Banks. Um, they're well marked and shown on the charts. 
we tend to see the first of the blonde rays around April and I fish for those hard on the bottom with a fairly short trace unfortunately you need a fair amount of lead there and you will only be able to fish there on the neat tides but we've had blonde rays there uh, well into the 20 pound I've also caught a fair amount of undulates and small eyed rays there we get the small eyed rays right the way through the season of the summer months um, but you will catch um, brill, spotted rays um, and various other as well as bass there that's good, so you've got a mixture of fishing here now moving further offshore there's a lot of that sort of uh, Kingmere and the, and the places in shallow water what is the wreck fishing scene like now because obviously you've got hundreds of wrecks out there that were, that were uh, sunk uh, during both first and second world wars uh, are they actually fished out? Are they still worth sport fishing? And what sort of species uh, would you aim for there? Well, obviously, with this part of the channel was very heavily torpedoed during the, the wars, especially with us being fairly close to Portsmouth. Uh, we have probably in excess of 100 wrecks within 20 miles of Littlehampton Arbour entrance. And it's, it's fairly true to say that over the years, especially with GPS technology now becoming readily available to the small boat own, uh, owner, and of course uh, outboard engines which give them a very good run of speed, the wreck fishing has, there's no doubt, got worse over the years. However, there are still good fish to be taken, although probably not the quantities that we used to see in the past. However, you know, I'm tending to venture out to say 30, 35 mile wrecks where um, we are still seeing good quality pollock early in February when they're spawned up, as well as conger, ling, and of course cod, especially during the summer months. We tend to fish for those with the traditional methods of gilling, red gills, uh, particularly black and red for the pollock. Where, um, but I prefer the more modern um, shads for um, the cod and indeed uh, leadheads. Orange seems to be a particularly good colour. But we're fishing in uh, excess of 180 feet for those fish. So you've got a bit of lead there. What would you recommend? Like 20, 30 pound boat rods, a bit, a bit heavier tackle, or can you still get away using braid with a lighter rod there? Well, you can do, but I think for because we're talking about ling um, to 20 pounds, if you're fishing for conger, obviously I've had them up to 70 pounds. Ideally, I think 30 pound, modern 30 pound class rods, I've not had any snap because of the size of a fish. They're ideal, especially when you twin them up with the more modern braids that are available on the market now. 30 pound of braid is, um, is adequate, and you'll find you'll need a lot less lead. On your own uh, rods and reels, uh, just at a point of interest, would you spool the whole lot up with braid, or do you do what I've heard some anglers just topping them by, if they've got two or three reels, they buy a, a metre, but say 100 or 200 metres on each reel with nylon underneath. I mean, what do you do? Do you buy a whole big bulk spool of braid? Uh, no, I mean, braid is relatively expensive. Um, what I tend to do is I put uh, a good 100 yards of quality mono, on the spool first that actually stops the braid from bedding down as well into the spool which I think is ideal but what I also do is um, I like to put about 10 foot of shock leader onto the braid on the end of the line so that you're still actually fishing with mono on that last bit and I think that's ideal especially with novices because the first run of a good pollock um, when it takes your lure over a wreck you don't get any um, cushioning at all if you're just going direct to braid and it's surprising how many pollock I've seen coming to the net with a huge hole in their mouth where the braid hasn't given any give whatsoever. Mm. Well, you operate uh, for a wide variety of species 
for your own personal fishing, you know, what's your favourite light tackle outfit on rods, reels, you know, with, and the species, what do you actually physically enjoy most? Because you're out there almost every day of the year, I suppose, if you can get out with the weather. So what's your personal um, excitement factor, shall we say, for fishing? Well, if you'd have asked me that question uh, three or four years ago, I would have almost um, certainly answered as bass as being my, my main quarry. And to, to a certain extent, that is still... Uh, some of the fishing I most enjoy, uh, whether it be drifting with lures for the smaller shoal bass or indeed live baiting the inshore wrecks for the, the bigger bass during the summer. However, I think now it has to be on a par with the big tope that we catch. We catch tope to 50 and 60 pounds during the summer months and I think they're probably the finest sport fish that we have in our area and probably the most likely fish that you've got to compare with big game fishing outside of the UK. Yeah, they are they are pretty exciting. I look, uh, quite like shallow water tote fishing. I see you've got two log books um, here, which you must uh, fill out pretty regularly. And I couldn't help coming through it, and I saw some absolutely frightening statistics on bass with some huge numbers of bass. And you're catching these in the autumn and winter. So what's that all about? Yeah, absolutely, Graham. Um, I've been keeping these log books ever since I started um, charter fishing. I think I've now got five. Um, filled in over the years um, and in fact I keep one on the boat for the clients to look at as well it gives them an idea of what's being caught at that time basically at the end of every single day whether it be a good or a bad one I come back and I fill in this logbook mainly for my own use it gives me an idea of where I caught the fish what type of tide was uh, I'm always looking for a factor that might might help me in my quest to continually find fish with regards to the bass we get a good run of bass in the spring and autumn. They tend to be shoalfish, and they tend to be feeding heavily on the sprats that shoal up in our area at this time of year. For that reason, on a day when they're on the feed, we often drift through them with lures, and uh, we can catch phenomenal numbers of them. Once again, being cons uh, conscious of the conservation side of things, we tend to return a great deal of those fish. But during the course of, it, of the day, we will always see some of the bigger fish turning up amongst them as well. Um, so yeah, bass fishing still remains one of my favourite forms of fishing. But I think, ideally, the, the months of July through to September are my favourite when we actually target big bass on inshore wrecks uh, with live bait mackerel. And what sort of size fish are you talking about? I, um, I did see one on your uh, website. I think was it £13.9? Is that the biggest one you've had? £13.9 is actually the biggest one we've had in the, over the last year. But we catch probably in excess of 30 bass a year, uh, I would say over £10. The biggest one we've ever had on the boat is just under 15. But they're extremely rare fish, you know. I mean, uh, we catch a lot of bass between 7 and £10. But it's a bit like a golfer. If you didn't get a hole in one, if it's not £10, it's not £10. I often see a big bass, magnificent looking fish, which I expect to be bigger, and then sometimes disappointed to see it go £9.3 on the scales. If it's not £10, it's not £10. <laughs> well, you've got to leave those scales at home. I've done that one myself with a lot of different species and wish I'd never put it on the scales. Now, on those numbers, you give us the sizes. You know, what, what have you done? I mean, it looks like sort of 50s, 60s, even more you've had in a day, you know, albeit a lot of them return. But what sort of numbers do you uh, remember getting with the, with the big catches of numbers of fish? Um, it's not unusual for us to have, um, have in excess of 100 in one day. I think actually the record for the boats is 300 and something. So, yeah, we've had a few. That's yeah, amazing. Uh, 
any sharks? I, mean, I, I, I you were talking earlier on, and the, on these uh, fantastic tow fishing you get, and I heard you mention you hooked up to a thresher. What was the what was the story on that? And and give us a rundown. Have you done any pool beagle fishing, or is, does anybody indeed go pool beagle shark fishing anymore? Well, years ago, Littlehampton, believe it or not, was actually quite well known for um, shark fishing. In fact, the um, lady record for the area, sorry, the British record for the area was caught by a lady angler from. Littlehampton. Um, for the past few years I've been um, trying very very hard to catch uh, either a thresher or a poor beagle off of the more commonly known areas off the Isle of Wight which in actual fact is only about a 40 mile run for us so we can safely get there within, um, within an hour and a half where we start our drifts. But um, the, the thresher that we did hook uh, last year we had on for uh, an hour and a half before we lost it unfortunately and that was on a day when we were tote fishing. But uh, yeah they are there to be caught and every year we see sightings of them. Uh, with regards to poor beagles unfortunately we don't see them enough for me to actually go out and target them but every year when we're wreck fishing somebody will be reeling in either a ling or a cod and it will come up bitten in half where it's been taken by a poor beagle halfway up. I've also had poor beagles following hooked fish right up um, to the to the boat. You know, which is normally um, normally my first knowledge of it is when an angler says, "Look at the size of this thing. Yeah. We need a bigger boat." So they are there. They are there to be caught. I would dearly love to catch one, and uh, we're, we're we're trying hard. Well, you've got to be got to be in it to win it, as they say. There's one point there that uh, I think is worth picking up on. You mentioned about having the pool beagle follow up, a, say, a hookfish, a cod, or a pollock. Um, you told me a tip which I didn't know about before about re the returning of bass. You know, when you're doing catch and release fishing, what was that? You know, you you, you don't return it, or you do return it a certain way. What was that about returning the bass? It might spook the others. Yeah, I've definitely found over the years that, uh, especially in our shallow water areas, that uh, when the feed, when the bass are feeding heavily, they tend to move um, with the boat along with the hooked fish. I've found over the years that if we definitely hold on to the bass that we don't wish to keep until the end of the drift before returning them, we've tended to have better numbers and more success. It's still my belief, therefore, that uh, if we actually release fish on top of the feeding shoal, don't ask me how, but it tends to spook them. So um, I tend to quietly go uh, up tide of the shoal, uh, switch my engines off and indeed my sounders. Uh, we drift quietly over the feeding shoal taking um, one or two fish over the shoal and then if they're not of size we put them into a bucket of water wait till we're safely away from the shoal and return them by doing that that gives us the opportunity to fish for them throughout the day yeah, you mentioned uh, something else I picked up on there um, other than return you switch a sound off do you think they're disturbed by the sounder I mean you have to locate them initially by the sounder but are the signals you think there um, might you know put the fish on edge a bit I'm not sure if it's actually the sound or all the, all the engines. All I can definitely tell you is that on days when the bass are feeding heavily, very often the seagulls are giving them away as they're diving down on the opportunity for themselves to catch sprats. I have known in the past for several boats, therefore, to come into the area very, very quickly. And very, very quickly, I've also seen the shoals scatter and or go deep or indeed stop feeding completely. On days when I've been on my own and able to turn the engines and sounder off, as I said earlier, it's given me the opportunity to fish for them literally throughout the whole day without spooking them. Yeah, well, I mean, you need all the uh, pluses in your favour you can get nowadays with less fish about. It's getting harder and harder. 
up this way obviously in the winter fishing is the cod what what's your sort of take on the the cod fishing scene over the last few years and what do you think of it for the future what do you think it holds size wise and numbers for the anglers well that's an interesting question and there's no doubt about it we've seen more cod in the last couple of years than i can remember for a long time and i think that's probably because of some of the uh, legislation that's been put on the commercial people catching them over the over the last years Littlehampton isn't perhaps as well known as other areas locally for cod. We don't have the depth of water that, for example, they get east of Brighton and down that way. However, we still catch cod here in relatively good numbers, especially on the wrecks in the summer. We, we still get a very, very good run of channel whiting, but this year in particular, um, it's not uncommon for the cod to be running in the uh, teens. So, uh, in fact, only yesterday one of the boats came back with uh, three 18-pounders. So there are still cod to be caught here, and I would say that the size of the cod is increasing. This year I'm particularly looking forward to the wreck fishing. There's been considerably larger numbers of cod caught in the uh, commercial nets, and that size seems to be bigger than last year. Most of those fish, by the end of March, will start their move back out onto the wrecks, where they're congregated in a smaller area. We tend to have some very good numbers of cod coming to the boat. So there you have it. Uh, anybody listening to this, it looks like this uh, spring and summer you might get some big cod over the wrecks. Well, Neil, uh, thank you very much for all that information. Um, we all know that the south coast of England is pretty dire in January and February, and I've heard a little whisper on the grapevine that you might be starting up an operation, a charter operation, in warmer foreign climes. Now, I've heard uh, Kenya mentioned, as one of the places I've also been to many years ago, great fishing there, so are you going to let us in on the secret? Are you going to tell us what you're thinking about for perhaps next winter? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, there's no getting away from the fact that um, the period between November through to March is, is very often cold. It's very, very difficult uh, getting um, uh, a day out uh, dependent on the weather. We tend to get more wind. And um, I'm really looking forward to being able to extend my business throughout the year. Um, so with that, with that in mind, I've been looking at uh, Antigua, Tobago, um, and very other, various other destinations around the world where we might um, be able to operate. Uh, I think at the moment our favourite is probably coming out as uh, Watamoon in Kenya. Over the years, they seem to have developed uh, a fairly large fishery around the hotel there, predominantly looking for sailfish, uh, black and striped marlin. I think it's a good opportunity, and it's something that I need to look at a little more deeply over the next uh, over the next few months. Well, we wish you luck with uh, with both the fishing in the UK and obviously abroad. And uh, I'd rather like to be recording you when you're in uh, Kenya. That's a nice warm place to go. So thanks very much to Neil French, uh, owner and skipper of the Spirit of Aaron. Anybody interested in getting in touch with him from this podcast, uh, phone on 07831 848561 or you can try the website www.spiritofaron, all small case, .co.uk. So thanks very much, Neil, and uh, hopefully we're going to hear something in the fishing press from you as well. Mm-hmm.